Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and this is the show that takes a deeper look at the stories that are making the news in business and politics here in Ireland and around the world. I'll be keeping you company for the next hour and coming up on today's show, we'll be looking at something that's increasingly affecting us all. Because whether you know it or not, and despite the increasing automisation in this world, we're becoming more and more responsible for doing those small little jobs that companies used to do for us. That's a phenomenon known as shadow working. And the Financial Times Associate Editor Rana Fuyuhar talks to us about its origins and how it's affecting our workforces. Later in the show, the first 100 days of a leader's reign are said to be crucial. And this is certainly true for Elon Musk's new position at Twitter. We'll be hearing from journalist Chris Stokel-Walker and we'll be getting his assessment on how Musk has fared during this period. And finally, with the European Parliament's decision this week to phase out petrol and diesel vehicles by 2035, we'll be discussing the current state of electric cars here in Ireland and the challenges that motorists face when choosing to switch to lower carbon emission vehicles. Stay tuned for all this and more and you can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. But first up today, it's been just over 100 days since Tesla CEO Elon Musk entered Twitter headquarters with a sink in his hands and that deal to purchase the greatest town hall of our time's finally came to what was an excruciating conclusion. But what has Elon Musk done since then? I'm joined now from London by Chris Stoker-Walker, who's a freelance journalist and a communicator specialising in digital culture. Chris, you're very welcome back to Taking Stock. Thank you for having me, Mandy. Now, the idea that the first 100 days of any leader is crucial um, goes back to Franklin D. Roosevelt when he inherited the presidency when the country was in a grip of extreme depression Um, and you could say that Elon Musk took over when the company was in crisis largely down to his own making but he's been tweaking Twitter's platform like Bilio ever since he got in. Um, I just want you to give us your assessment of any meaningful changes that you think he's made to date and how you would characterise his first 100 days. Oh crikey where do we even start with this? Um, Meaningful changes lots of them there have been huge transformative changes uh, on Twitter over the last hundred days ones that uh, Elon Musk kind of threatened promised depending on your point of view he would do whether they are meaningful changes for the better is another question entirely and one that I think the majority of users think probably is not the case um you know, Elon Musk took over Twitter with a couple of key goals. He wanted to redress what he saw as a, a sort of political speech imbalance, which favoured more liberal voices. He has certainly fixed that. Um, he has kind of uh, almost exclusively engaged with right-wing voices that are concerned about uh, tech issues that they've encountered and almost acted as kind of like a, a one-man help desk in mm. addressing their issues, which is something that you think a CEO of a $44 billion company probably you know, shouldn't be doing and should be uh, asking a, a, a lower-level staff member to do. But that's Elon Musk's time. How he wants to spend it is absolutely fine. The other issue uh, that Elon Musk wanted to tackle 
was this issue of bots, inauthentic accounts, um, computer-generated users that were posting what he sees as low-quality content that, in theory, could change and divert um, the tenor of conversation on Twitter. Mm. He's also done something around that. Um, most recently, in the last sort of week and a half, he has introduced changes to what's called the API on Twitter, the application programming interface. Don't want to get into too much detail. It's a weekend. People are relaxing. But the API is essentially uh, the grease that makes Twitter work and the internet work, and those two things interact with each other. Uh, he has introduced um, a price to access the API, uh, which means that essentially he's trying to tackle bots at their source because bots use these things called APIs to automate a lot of their processes. Problem with that is a lot of other good things uh, use the API, from third-party services where you can access Twitter to academic researchers trying to investigate the impact of Twitter. And he's kind of broken the platform in doing this, literally, in mm. fact, he changed the API access and then uh, people weren't able to post on Twitter for about an hour and a half, a week and a half ago. So things aren't going brilliantly, but he is changing it. Mm. On the engagement front, as you said, he's largely taken a lot of the control himself. He has engaged um He's even changed the algorithms, as you say, to kind of make sure that his tweets are reached by more people. And, and we come back to that again. But has he, and I'm just trying to get an overall sense of this, has he kind of turned what was a very successful company into something that now looks like, and in fact is a one-man show being run by one man, where his corporate team are very often playing catch-up to him on Twitter in a similar way that you'd seen the Trump administration maybe following Donald Trump on Twitter to find out what was happening within their own or within their own plans. Has he actually engaging kind of created this autocracy for himself? He has. And I think this is what's really fascinating about it is, you know, you mentioned uh, in the introduction that the idea was that he was going to introduce uh, and kind of correct the wrongs that he saw around um, the great public square, the, the forum in which we interact increasingly nowadays. And, and Twitter's user base is largely made up of those kind of decision makers, journalists, politicians, uh, CEOs, business leaders. Um, but you're right, he's kind of done this in an interesting way where actually the public forum has become much more private. So literally he's taken the company private in taking over it, but he's also made it much more based around the whims of one person. Mm. Um, and you know what he says goes, he has tried to give a sop to kind of democratic belief in that he's over the course of the first hundred days posted a series of, of Twitter polls uh, where he surveys his you know, hundred million strong audience asking them for their opinions on key policy decisions. The thing about that is he tends to do this, then ignore the results. Um, so you know, one of the most egregious examples of this is before Christmas, he tweeted out a poll saying, do you think I should resign as CEO of Twitter? Everybody said yes. Yeah. Well, well, actually, that's not that's not statistically incorrect. I'm a journalist. I should focus on the facts. A majority of people said yes. Uh, he's still there. Uh, mm. He said recently this week at a, a, a big uh, investment forum uh, that he was invited to speak to virtually that he thinks that a new CEO could take over by the end of 2023. I'll believe it when I see it, Mandy. So he, he's interestingly changed this, as you say, in a very Trumpian way to be um, in the, his own model for good or evil. And on those third party 
uh, platforms that supported mm. Twitter uh, in the earlier days. Well, I suppose up until uh, Elon Musk came in. Can you just give our, our listeners a sense of how that worked and why the discontinuation of that is significant? I know that that's something that Jack Dorsey in particular wanted to happen, that he wanted Twitter to be part of an ecosystem rather than just a standalone thing. So could you just take us through the structure of that uh, and why that matters now? Yeah, absolutely. So so Twitter fundamentally is um, a communications platform. And, and, and you're right, Jack Dorsey, the former CEO, um, except recent except for the last one, which was a different person, but he's essentially the founder of the company, um, had this idea that it kind of becomes a, a communications protocol that you you don't necessarily have to visit Twitter, but you can actually integrate with lots of other different platforms. And that is what this API, this application programming interface did. So you could, for instance, um, and this is another uh, kind of interesting moment in Elon Musk's first 100 days, you could, for instance, um, create what's called a, a, an automated bot uh, a profile on Twitter that takes data from uh, one source, it analyzes it, and then using the API, a third-party access, it then posts it to Twitter to inform users. And we had one of these, uh, which was called ElonJet, uh, and it basically tracked Elon, Jet, Elon Musk's uh, private jet as it flew around the country, as it flew around the world, uh, sort of raising awareness of his environmental impact. And his was one of many. Um, you know, there was a one for Bill Gates, mm. there was a one for Taylor Swift, there were lots of others. These are important bits of accountability and they kind of show the centrality of Twitter in society. Now, part of the reason why uh, the API change has happened in February 2023 is because in November and December 2022, Elon Musk got very unhappy about the existence of Elon Jet uh, and, and banned the, the account, banned the person behind it, banned also, really worryingly, a series of journalists who covered um, the story, some of whom still haven't returned to the platform. So this third-party access to Twitter's API is really, really important um, because it provides a lot of the value of why people come to Twitter. A lot of accounts use it in a really useful way. Um, certainly a lot of journalistic publications do because it automates their systems very well. But it's also this idea of not just how you produce content and post it to Twitter, but also how you analyse what is going on mm. on Twitter. Lots of Academics use it to uh, try and track um, the spread of hate speech online, to look at uh, how you know undercurrents of political discontent bubble under, and losing that as as we are is is a really significant moment. And when he came in, he kind of upended the company. He changed mm. the staff numbers quite significantly, reducing them by, I think, 2,000 in total. Um, he also kind of discarded the management team. So what happened to moderation and misinformation? How has he addressed those in such chaotic, um, I suppose, and changing staff? Like, how do you actually continue to support moderation, misinformation with, like, far fewer staff than you had before? He hasn't, really. He hasn't addressed it. I mean, he has in one sense in that a lot of this stuff has now been outsourced to artificial intelligence. The issue with 
artificial intelligence non-human intervention moderation is that it often misfires and either it misses a lot of these things or it um, overly sensoriously interrupts a lot of these things so um you you can very very easily get caught up in it um i can't remember the exact account now but there was one um account that i was looking at today that was appealing directly to elon musk because it had a a name that included a word that could be misconstrued as being rude and it was getting caught up and Mm. its reach on the platform being limited um because of that but then likewise you know We've seen multiple um, people who track the spread of hate speech, the spread of racism on social media. You know, an organization called the Center for Countering Digital Hate, which focuses specifically on this sort of stuff, said that in the immediate aftermath of Elon Musk's takeover, as he got rid of all of those staff, as he uh, kind of helped signal potentially to those who like to say nasty things online that they were welcome here that this spiked and i think that's a real concern twitter has kind of become an uglier place in the first hundred days of elon musk's reign that's uh yeah that's a that's a sad indictment of his of his first hundred days for sure if you're just tuning in you're listening to news talks taking stock i'm mandy johnston and i'm talking to chris stokel walker who's a freelance journalist and specialist in digital culture chris let's just talk about the user experience of twitter because that's really what it's all about does do you think he's done anything to enhance that have you found personally that it's gotten any better any worse uh, what's the sentiment around um, whether or not things have improved I think almost universally there is a belief that it's got worse. And what's interesting is um, in the first sort of few weeks of Elon Musk's control of Twitter, um, former employees who had recently found themselves on the dole line um, were telling me that things are going to get pretty rocky pretty quickly. And I was reporting on this and um, there would be a kind of committed group of Elon Musk fans who would uh, kind of try and shout you down and Mm. say, well, of course you would say that you're part of the mainstream media and these people are telling you lies because they've been fired because they were actually underperforming and they have an axe to grind. What's interesting is some of those exact same people and and some of Elon Musk's biggest fans, even before the Twitter takeover, have have started complaining to him on Twitter. They've kind of said, actually, this experience is getting worse. They are complaining about um, downtime, the the, the platform not working. They're complaining about glitches that are the result of Elon Musk routing his engineering team. They're complaining about, um, you know, incidences where you can no longer post. Um, We had, you this issue uh, a week and a half ago where Twitter went offline for 90 minutes that was inconvenient to everyday users in the West but it was actually coincided with um, uh, the the Turkey and and Syria earthquakes and and people were literally posting from the rubble saying I'm in this location please come and find me And, and when Twitter went offline that's a matter of life or death. So this is you know, a materially worse platform than it was when he took over. And um, there doesn't seem to be a, a sort of strategy for improving it in the short term or long term. Yeah, and, you know, we can be, uh, I suppose, a bit, a bit dismissive of the platform as a, a town hall and talk about it in those terms. But it has prov- provided very useful uh, communication uh, as a u- very useful communication tool in 
in great tragedy, the war in Ukraine last year as well, it was extremely important, particularly in those early weeks. Chris, when we're talking about anything like this, and we have to be fair to Elon Musk, you know, he, he obviously is a brilliant man in, in, in many ways. Eventually, it will all come down to the numbers. I've seen that he said he thinks that in 2023, they're set to make three billion, which is still two billion less than the returns for last year. So can you just take us through the legacy of debt that he brought with him into into that buyout and how the revenues are faring up for him? And when yeah, uh, when does that become an issue? Um, I think it's it's a live issue now because a lot of the money that he used to finance the purchase of Twitter was, you know, extended credit from organizations that are maybe thinking, I don't know if this is really working. Mm. Um, and, and we know that there have been um, you know, venture capitalists and those who kind of bought into the deal who tapped Musk on the shoulder over the course of the last hundred days and kind of said, you need to buck up your ideas here because we are getting a bit worried. You know, people who have connections in, in that kind of reporting community have have said that. Um, you know, Twitter wasn't well run in the first place. That is something that we do need to put into context. It, it was you know, making a smidgen of money when uh, Musk purchased it, but had only just really started doing that. Um, he has still, however, made it worse. And you, know, you have to be conscious of the fact when Elon Musk says, we think that we're on track to clear $3 billion, um next year, that... Um, this is someone who uh, has been censored by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission mm. for misrepresenting business propositions in the past. Mm. Uh, and I, I choose my words very carefully there because this is a radio station and I'm a journalist and I know media law. Um, but there is um, this idea that this is no longer a public company that has the requirements of transparency in publishing its financial returns. And so I guess, you know, I, I would caution taking what Elon Musk says about the finances of the company at face value, not least because, you know, the, the overwhelming weight of evidence from those within the company that aren't at Elon Musk's level, but do look at those spreadsheets and talk to reporters like me, mm. say that things aren't necessarily as rosy as he says. So we know when Elon Musk took over, he decided he wanted to pivot um, the way that Twitter made money away from um, being primarily advertising-based to being a subscription-based model. He launched this thing called Twitter Blue, which was meant to be um, and I need to get the sequencing of this right. Initially, $4 a month, and then I believe $8 a month, and then back down no, to $4 a month. I think it was the other way around. I think it was other 8 then he, 4 How much will you he, pay? Yeah. yeah. It was he negotiated a against himself. It was 8 then 4 then $11. Um, <laughs> and then we learned that he well, was targeting millions of subscribers for this. He ended up getting, I think, barely over 160000 or something like that, um, which is not enough to run a company on. And at the same time, scared off advertisers in yeah. huge numbers. Um, 
which is a huge issue when oh, you're oh, always you know, a bad sign about. when they're not releasing statistics to support yeah. what they said to do um, Chris I did want to talk to you about uh, Tesla and the effect that he has had on that but mm. maybe that's another day just finally and very briefly because it's been in the papers here what's mm. your take on the speculation about him looking at Manchester United uh, as a possible buyer I think he's got more money than sense although he's increasingly losing money isn't he uh look it, it wouldn't be uh the first time that he has tried to do an odd business deal and um potentially got away with it if i mean if he did try and do this what we might see is the same playbook as twitter where he says i want to buy it then he says i don't want to buy it Drives manchester united causes bluff and yeah and then he ends up having to buy it through some sort of court case and running it into the ground it's a newcastle united fan he has you know a lot of uh money flowing into that company uh into that football club i wouldn't mind if man united weren't very good anymore <laughs> okay well for now we're going to leave it there that's chris stokel walker freelance journalist and communicator specializing in digital culture chris as always it's a pleasure thank you for joining us thank you you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Next up, we're going to discuss a phenomenon that's become increasingly prevalent in our digital lives. It's called shadow work and you might be doing a lot more of it than you realise. Stay tuned for more after the break. Next up, we're going to discuss a phenomenon that's become increasingly prevalent in our digital aid. It's called shadow work. But what is it and what does it mean for our daily lives and indeed the employment landscape? Joining us now to discuss is Rana Fuhar, who is global business columnist and an associate editor at the Financial Times. And she's based in New York. Rana, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Now, a big question that we're facing in a work context all over the world is about productivity. A lot of people putting down the lack of productivity to the the post-COVID uh, uh, pandemic hangover. Um, but what is affecting it, in your consideration, uh, has something else to do with the way we are now working. And tell us about uh, the term shadow work. Oh, sure. Well, so shadow work is a term that's been around for several decades now. It um, was was initially coined um, as a way to kind of describe mothering, um, you know, the, the unpaid work that goes into taking care of a home, taking care of children. But it's expected, particularly in the digital age, to include all the sorts of work that we all do um, that other people used to do. So just to give you a sense, um, in an average week, um, I might go on a business trip in which I have had to book the all of the travel myself, um, often using a variety of platforms, depending on um, whose trip it is, who's paying. Uh, you know, I might get to the airport and then have to scan in my own items for lunch. In fact, I, I did that the other day. Um, you know, and I was I was working just with a kiosk. There was no human being around. I scanned in my lunch items, and then I was asked if I if I wanted to leave a tip. And I thought, you know, to myself, <laughs> you know, who am I leaving this tip for? Um, think about all the apps that you have to download to uh, organize class bookings, or your. In my case, my my children's uh, educational schedules are now kept online and I have to manage setting up meetings with their teachers and things that used to be done just automatically or or with a human being that you could sort of walk and talk to someone. And don't even get me started on how do you deal with customer service issues for online purchases. You know, I think about if there's a mistake in your department store order or your Amazon order, you've got to go to the emails and then the chat box 
chatbots and then the the you know representatives in places like India or the Philippines that um, may not to, to be quite honest may not have English skills may not be able to help you. You may be put on hold numerous times. I mean, this is all time mm. that is being taken out of your day to do things that other people used to do. And I, I tally this up and I spend several hours a week on shadow work. Yeah. Now, I have to admit, it wasn't a term I'd heard before. But when I read your article, I honestly had a real light bulb moment because I thought, actually, I'm not the only person who is frustrated <laughs> by daily, um, you know, dealings with apps, banks, travel, booking, parking, you know, buying tickets, ordering coffees. It's it's. It's phenomenal the amount of time that we ourselves spend managing our, our, our own affairs. But actually how we've segued into that without knowing is quite extraordinary. And that's that's one part of it, how it affects your mood, how it affects your day, how frustrated you become. But there's another really important side of it, which is the consequences that it has for employment. So could you just take us through a little bit of the um, consequences of this type of automation for the employment sector? Yeah, absolutely. So shadow work is really, from the corporate perspective, it's about cost cutting. Mm. It's about trying to get human labor off the balance sheet, um, which is frankly what companies always want to do because it saves them money. Um, And it's worth noticing that since the early 1990s, every time there's a, a recessionary cycle and companies feel pinched, they invest more in this sort of automation and this sort of um, job diminishing technology. Now, the argument is, is, of course, always that, well, ultimately technology is a job creator, but, you know, that it takes takes a while. Sometimes entire categories of jobs don't come back. And in the case of the sort of AI, um, highly digital automation that we've been seeing in the last decade or two, it has destroyed entire categories of entry level work so clerical work or you know um, you know working say in a coffee shop or or as a travel agent things that you know might have been a good entry level uh, a job for a younger person uh, those categories have gone away that's good for companies mm. but it's not necessarily good for certain categories of workers And the other thing that's important to note is that we, as the consumer, are now picking up that work. That's an interesting point, Rana. You you also asked the question in your article, um, if it really makes sense for higher level executives from spending their time doing these type of jobs. And I know that might sound to many like somewhat elitist, but it is a valuable point to make that you don't really realise the amount of time you're spending doing everybody else's job who used to actually be serviced for you by a human being rather than something that's automated. So is this actually evaluated or benchmarked anywhere? Is anybody kind of looking at this? I know the term has been around since the 80s. Is anybody qualifying how much it's increased? No, they're really not. You know, I was quite amazed when Mm. I did my column for the FT that I rang up all the usual suspects, economists, statisticians. I actually called the IMS Statistical Bureau, which, you know, has a lot of data on things like this. They actually do an entire conference on areas that are underexplored data-wise, but this was not among them. And Mm. I think it really is having a massive effect on productivity because if you think about it, just imagine, um, you know, a a high-level senior executive who is making whatever, you know, $100,000, $200,000 a year that is 
scanning in their own coffee, you know, tallying up their own receipts, doing their own, in the case of America, doing their own healthcare paperwork, which is a whole nother special hell. Um, and that's time out of their day. Now, previously, these jobs might have been done appropriately by someone who was a younger worker, a less experienced worker, and uh, a lower paid worker. So the productivity advantage um, disappears when you're having someone who's senior who could be using their time and skills to do something much more productive, doing something that is at a lower level. Great for the company balance sheets, not good for the overall economy. Mm. But what about the positives? So surely it has to have some benefits for individuals. Um I know maybe you could look at it and say it's a little bit more stressful, but the other side of it is you can access a lot of things that you couldn't um, before if you were depending on a person to be at something from nine to five and online. So did you see any kind of positives out of out of your assessment of it? Well, that's uh, that's absolutely true. The convenience factor is huge and there there absolutely must be, although it's not, again, clearly tallied, an advantage to sort of the um, stretching out of the workday, let's say, or the, the ability to be kind of 24-7 on. But I would caveat that by saying that there are economic statistics and studies now to show that after people have worked for about, you know, really productively for about six hours, they start to um, go down in terms of productivity. So we're not meant, mm. <laughs> frankly, to work 24-7. And that's one of the things that happened during COVID. We saw a productivity dip in the last year or so. And some economists think it's because we're just exhausted. You know, we were all working all the time because we could. We were at home and, you know, we were sort of 24-7 on. And you you just can't keep up that pace as a human being um, indefinitely. Yeah. So, so there's a lot here. It's very complicated, but it's a worthy, worthy topic for an academic to take on, I would think. It absolutely is. Um, I just want to ask you two final questions about this. Can companies take any steps to minimize the amount of shadow work their customers or indeed their employees are expected to, to do? Well, they certainly can, and they do it at the upper levels. It's very interesting. If you think about what is a luxury experience these days? What is a luxury product? It's not so much a thing. You know, we all have plenty of things. It's a service, mm. and oftentimes that service is performed by a human being. So let's say if you go, if you have a problem with your watch, you walk into Cartier, you are going to go straight upstairs and have th you know, three people serving you tea and talking to you happily about your problem. And you, know, you are definitely not going to be on uh, the, the, the phone or the uh, online with a chat bot. Yeah. Um, but the rest of us uh, living in the real world are having to deal with more and more technology. So human touch itself has become a luxury product. That's so interesting. A unique selling point for any company is to, to provide actual people, real human beings. And indeed, uh, it's a luxury that maybe only the rich can can have now. And um, just finally, then, is shadow work here to stay? Do you think that there's going to be a shift backwards to more towards more traditional forms of work. I tried to go off the grid last weekend here in Ireland. It was a bank <laughs> holiday and I think I lasted about 45 minutes until I realised <laughs> I couldn't actually buy anything, park anywhere. So do you think it's just going to keep increasing or do you think we're becoming a little bit more aware? 
Oh my goodness, you're reminding me of a time a few years ago when I dropped my cell phone on Christmas Eve and it oh. broke, you know, and I I couldn't get one for about five days and I was twitchy. It was like, a, you know, I was going off cigarettes or something, you know, I couldn't couldn't quite deal. But then I'll be honest with you, after about a couple of days, I felt so much better. Um, there are a lot of people that are doing sort of digital holidays, you know, just to try and get a break from it all. But no, I, I think shadow work is going to be with us. However, I think that we're moving to a world in which companies are going to be forced to kind of quantify and explain all of this more, better. I mean, the public is not stupid, and there's an entire generation of younger people that have kind of grown up with technology, and they know when they're being suckered mm. um, into doing things. And so I think, you know, the, the PR value is uh, there, there may be a bit of backlash there for companies to come. Absolutely. And uh, the awareness of it, I think, is is the first step for us all as individuals. But the article is called The Real Cost of Shadow Work. It's by Rana Fuhar and she is global business columnist and associate editor at The Financial Times. She's based in New York. Rana, thank you so much for spending your valuable time with us today. Oh, thank you so much. You're listening to Taking Stock on News Talk with me, Mandy Johnston. And up next, as the EU puts the brakes on combustion vehicles, we'll get the lowdown on the move toward zero emission vehicles and what it means for the daily driver. Stay tuned. We'll be back after this short break. Welcome back to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, carbon neutrality is something of a religion in Germany, but faith has apparently got its limits. In recent months, there's been a considerable drop off in sales of electric vehicles as Berlin has withdrawn very costly subsidies there. So what drives success in that transition to electric vehicles and how are we faring here in Ireland? Well, joining me now to give us the lowdown is the motoring editor for the Sunday Independent, Geraldine Herbert. Geraldine, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Good morning, Mandy. Now, Jodie, sales of electric vehicles in Ireland are still surging ahead. Can you just give us a flavour of how they compare to overall sales in the Irish market? Yeah, Mandy, they're doing well. And the, the market share, I suppose, of, of new car sales has been doubling um, for the past number of years, but it's still relatively small. Um, electric cars account for new, about 15% of new car sales. If you add in plug-in hybrids, which are also considered electric cars, they throw in about another 6 6.5%. So about one in five new cars bought are bought with a plug or a pure electric. And we have probably at this stage about 70,000 electric cars on the road. So a long way to go to our 2030. Targets. Yeah, and big ambitions here in Ireland. You've seen this week that the EU have put the brakes on combustion engines. Um, I think it's by 2035 they're aiming to, to have many more biofuel or low emission uh, engines. So how do we compare to what the EU have tried to do this week here in Ireland? What are our own uh, targets? We've set a target or we were talking about setting a target of 2030. Now, as it stands, legally, Ireland can't impose that ban. Denmark tried to do it and they were told that it contravened EU law. So my own feeling on all of this is now that the EU are racing ahead with their 2035 ban, that that's going to be a a European wide ban. And I don't think we're going to be able to impose a ban five years earlier. That said, the government is moving towards those targets. They announced recently they're going to spend 100 million on the charging network and they're definitely committed to us getting as close as we can to those targets. But I mean, I I think our target of one million are um, electric cars by 2030 is going to be a huge challenge. Mm. Now, just on the EU front, what do they do to kind of force manufacturers into uh, producing more vehicles that are not run by the traditional diesel or petrol in the way we have in the past? How did they incentivize them to move forward? 
Well, essentially what they've been doing is they've been tightening the CO2 emission regulations um, for car makers. So that's that they've been making that lower and lower all the time. So for car makers to meet those um, very stringent um, regulations, they have to start adding electric cars. And there's no car manufacturer at this stage that isn't producing electric cars or plug-in hybrids of, of some sorts. And those targets are only going to get tighter over the next few years. So really, that's how they've brought about this change. And the other way, I suppose, to move the progression along is for governments to sort of incentivise buying them for, for citizens. How here in Ireland do do the government support the buying of these lower uh, carbon transitional vehicles? Yeah, the big problem at the moment, Mandy, is if you walk into a car dealership and you're looking at a petrol, a diesel and an electric car, and they're all similar sized models, you're going to pay a premium for the electric car. There's no doubt about that. There's still a premium to be paid. They're much cheaper to run, but they're much cheaper. To, they're much more costly to buy. Now, the government do give a up to €5,000 of VRT relief on cars under um, 40000 and the SEAI give a grant of 5000 on cars under the threshold of €60,000. So now there is talk that that's um, the SEAI grant is going to be reduced this mm. year. That hasn't been completely confirmed yet, but they did that with the uh, with the plug-in hybrids. It started off at a 5,000 grant, then it was reduced to 2,500. And last year, there was no grant at all for plug-in hybrids. And when those grants uh, are reduced or in some cases taken away, it does affect how people look to buying those vehicles. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But can I just talk to you a little bit about, you know, the pluses that uh, people will put forward on owning one of these vehicles? As you say, it is expensive, but the traditional sort of quid pro quo on it has always been that, look, one, you're doing something to protect the environment, uh, which is very important to, to all of us, but also that at some point, you will have cheaper fuel. Has that been the case, though, in this cost of living crisis when electricity prices uh, themselves are increasing? How have uh, motorists who have these electric vehicles, how have they fared in their sort of price point for fuel? Yeah, it depends, Mandy. I mean, remember that not only is electricity prices going up, but fuel, petrol and diesel costs have also risen. But the problem at the moment is if you're depending on the public charging network, the public charging network has gone up substantially. Now, there's still great value at home if you're charging at home. There's great night rates and, you know, you can you can really make a, a, a substantial saving. But if you're relying solely on the public charging network and for some reason you can't install a home charger, you know, you might be in an apartment or you might be in rented accommodation or something, that gap definitely between running a petrol and diesel car versus an electric car is closing all the time. Yeah, we've all heard the horror stories though. A friend of mine took off down to, I think, Kilkenny for a funeral and ended up no charging points available to them. Had to get a lift back from somebody else who was attending the funeral. Had to get a train back to collect it the next day. Not exactly, you know, carbon friendly when you have to make two journeys instead of one. And that's, I suppose, a, a lot to do with the fear that people have of buying uh, these type of vehicles. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'm talking to Geraldine Herbert, who is the motoring editor for the Sunday Independent. Geraldine, you mentioned earlier uh, that notion of subsidies um, and how important it is to the sector. We've seen some figures out of Germany recently, which show that when those subsidies were withdrawn, it had a big impact on their sales, didn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, their um, pure electrics were down 13% and hybrids, plug-in hybrids were down 6%. So that is a substantial reduction. But I think the reason for that is price is still a huge issue with people buying electric cars. And I would say if there were three things that make people, you know, wonder whether or not they're for them, it's range, it's the infrastructure, but it's price and, and affordability. And if you consider most of the subsidies across Europe are given for lower price cars, similarly as in Ireland, as I said, the VRT relief is on cars under under 40,000. If you remove, you know, three, four, five thousand euros from the from as a subsidy, that is a substantial hike in price. And it really is a deciding factor. And people just cannot make that stretch. For, you know, they just cannot go for an EV if it's that bit more expensive. So why, in your view, did the German government withdraw their subsidies at this particular moment in time? Well, I think their their goal initially was to put a million EVs on the road, and I think they achieved that last year. But I mean, it's still, in my opinion, too early because we don't have price parity, mm. and that is the idea that when you walk into a petrol, you walk into a dealership, the petrol, the diesel, and the EV will all be similarly priced. Now, if you look at somewhere like Norway, they created price parity artificially because they heavily subsidised electric vehicles and they really penalised petrol and diesel cars, and as a result, eighty percent of new cars sold in Norway are electric, mm. and it's for that that reason. So until we get to price parity, I don't think that governments are in a position to withdraw subsidies because subsidies are there to, to, you know, for a market failure. There's currently a market failure if price parity is not achieved. So, I, you know, I do think it's it's very counterproductive to remove. And what's, from, prevent, what's preventing mass production and the price parity issue being addressed? There's a number of reasons at the moment. The two biggest reasons why um, our factors in price parity is number one, um, the cost of the batteries. Now, for, for years, battery prices have been falling, but that um, that has been reversed in the last while. Following uh, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, battery costs began to rise and lithium-ion, which is a major component, actually rose by 7% last year. This was according to Bloomberg at the end of the year. Now, if battery prices start to rise, that could really have a huge impact on the cost of mm. electric cars. The other thing is um, carbon manufacturers need to move from producing um, basically petrol and diesel cars and kind of shoehorning in an electric battery into them to actually producing cars from scratch as electric cars. The more they do that, the more costs come down. But obviously, there's an investment needed in those vehicle platforms to begin with. So there's all sorts of reasons why they've been slow to do it. And they are moving towards it. And economies of scale will reduce the cost. And the Chinese players are also coming into the market and they're reducing the cost. But I still think price parity is a good bit away. Plus, the cost of living crisis isn't going to help because, you know, people are just not buying cars, whether they're electric, petrol or diesel. Car sales are going to fall. So price parity and that whole tipping point, I think, is, is is further away than it was. Yeah. And of course, lithium, the really important mineral when you're talking about durability and range for those batteries. So it's a, it's a really crucial point. All right. And um, just beyond electric vehicles, uh, Geraldine, what other types of low carbon fuels are people looking at to, to drive the, the future of the motoring industry? Well, I suppose the other thing is hydrogen cars. And this is where the, the car industry is very much split almost geographically. The Asian car makers, Hyundai and um, Toyota, have always thought the future is in um, is in hydrogen cars. European car makers have been very slow and they've dabbled in hydrogen over the past dec- decade, but most have moved away from it completely. What's interesting is um, BMW now are bringing out basically a hydrogen version of their, um, their X5. Now, it's only a trial version. There's going to be about 100 of them and they 
they'll be going around Europe as kind of, you know, just demonstration vehicles. But they still haven't written off hydrogen. But it's it's one of those things the jury is definitely out on at the moment. And why is that? Is it because hydrogen would require a huge investment from the state in terms of infrastructure? Or why are Europe and the likes far behind where the Chinese are at in this? Is it about technology or is it about investment or both, perhaps? It's probably both. I mean, one of the biggest appeals about hydrogen is you can pull into a filling station, you can fill up and it's it's almost as convenient as a petrol or diesel car and you get a really long range. But the downsides are they're very expensive. The whole way that hydrogen is produced is very inefficient. And also, as you say, the infrastructure, the infrastructure is so expensive mm. to roll out that it can't be done by single companies. It'll need government investment, but there's no cars there's only a handful of, of hydrogen cars at the moment, so there's no demand for an infrastructure. So it's a chicken and egg situation at the moment. So, you know, the Chinese have, have decided that they're going to go for it. They've put in the money to the, the infrastructure. But as I said, Europe is dragging their heels on it at the moment. So Geraldine, what about hybrid cars? Is that what Irish people kind of go for more than the electric cars? Are they kind of happier with that safe place that's betwixt and between what we know and what we should be aiming for? Yeah, I think the the advantage and sort of the real attraction of hybrid cars for 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 people is you don't have to make any change to your lifestyle. So you don't need to, you know, install um, a home charger. You don't even have to drive it any different. And you still benefit from lower emissions than a petrol car and better fuel economy. But the thing about it is, I suppose you only get a bit more fuel, better fuel economy and a tiny bit better CO2 emissions, where the real saving is if you go to a plug-in hybrid. But they're more expensive. And again, and you have to charge them. So a lot of people just go for the convenience of the hybrid and you can see why. Mm, absolutely. Now beyond uh, the domestic car and uh, what we use it for in our, sort of our, our own personal life, let's talk about uh, electric vehicles or even hybrid vehicles in the working world of business. Do you see a shift across like vans and trucks? Is, is that ahead of where we're at with our own personal use vehicles or is it largely following the same route? Forgive the pun. Yeah, no, there's definitely a shift and I see an awful lot and fleets are going electric and, you know, the likes of DPD are electrifying their fleet and free now the, um, the taxi company are encouraging more and more of their drivers to drive electric and there's very good grants particularly for taxi drivers at the moment so there is finally it's taken a long time the car industry was very much concentrating on passenger cars but now it's producing a range of commercial vans I think in terms of trucks it's a bit more problematic trying to make electric trucks because the battery sizes and everything and that's where hydrogen might come in and might be far more useful um, so I think we're looking at sort of you know a mix of, of um, solutions in the future for different vehicles. And how do we compare, do you know, to the UK? Are they like way ahead of us in terms of what they're doing? I love comparing ourselves to our nearest neighbour. It's very often the first thing we do here. But are the UK more kind of attached to moving quicker or are they largely the same as us? They're not that much different, to be honest. Sorry, Mandy, you know, I can't I can't say they're flying ahead. Um, they obviously have far more electric cars on the road, but then they sell far more cars every year. So proportionately, they're not that far, far ahead. Again, they have very similar issues with the infrastructure that we have. It's very patchy. It's good in some places. And again, you know, they have the same reservations about electric cars in terms of range, the infrastructure and price. So, you know, it, they're fairly comparable to Ireland. Geraldine, finally, you're talking to us from Belgium, I gather, today on a car-related journey. Tell us about what you're at over there. Yeah, so I'm going to drive this electric BMW that I was talking about, the X5. As I said, it's for demonstration purposes only and it is to show people that they're that 
the future could be um, hydrogen. So I won't be driving it till tomorrow, but I'm, I'm very interested to, to talk to the um, engineers as to why they're booking the trend of that against and going against what the rest of Europe is doing and uh, and developing a passenger hydrogen car. Well, that sounds very glamorous. Is is that what the life of a motoring editor is like? Do you get to go to lovely cities and test different cars all the time? Um, no, not not an awful lot. And it, it is worth remembering that it's usually, you know, six o'clock in the morning flights and late nights at home. And, you know, so it's, it's not nearly as glamorous as it sounds, Mandy. I don't know, Geraldine. I think you're, <laughs> it's better to I'm be. I'm not convincing you. You're not convincing me. Listen, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for giving your insights into all of that. That was Geraldine Herbert, who's the motoring editor for the Sunday Independent. Geraldine, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and why we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings. We're always available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Next week, we'll be looking at the Bank of England and its plans to introduce a digital pound. If you want to get in contact with us about any of today's items, you can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo De Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae's up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.